Well, all right. We, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. We have uh, a goal tonight that we have as much fun presenting this as we did studying today, and that's going to be a hard goal to meet. Uh, I get to head out to a couple states and a few churches tomorrow, so uh, we'll do our best to handle this in two hours, but, well, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, y'all doing all right tonight? Yeah. Tonight is our eighth and final meeting on the section of Jeremiah that is called the Book of Consolation. There have been many good reasons for us to have taken our time and, well, to put it politely, a somewhat in-depth survey of this material. Perhaps the foremost reason is that Christians generally have no biblical foundation of understanding of what we call the New Covenant. And we see that as a profound problem. Things like the assertion that Jesus accomplished everything at the cross. Well, they sound really good, but in reality, that statement is entirely incorrect. He accomplished everything necessary to bring you into relationship with the Lord at the cross, but the new covenant is far from having currently produced what it will in the final form. It didn't all happen 2,000 years ago, and you're not just waiting to die and go to heaven. Those are relics from an age when people were trying to sell you indulgences. Even the most biblically literate among us, when I say things like that, go, oh, yeah, I, I get it. He, he's talking about the millennium is still to come. Well, that's true. We don't currently see the wolf and the lamb lying down together. But it's also true that the details that precede the millennium have not yet occurred. The Bible is not just Israel-centric. You've come to learn the Bible is Israel dependent. In Jeremiah chapter 30, 31, 32, 33, the very same section that describes the new covenant, well, it makes unassailable promises regarding Israel that have not now or at any time in the past come about. And they have to come about for the new covenant to be complete. Our aim over these eight special meetings has been to help you ascertain, begin to grab hold of, or grasp the context of actual biblical faith so that you can set your faith on the plan of God and not some fairy tale that somebody on TV is selling. The plan of God is dependent upon the consolation of Israel. The New Testament demonstrates it. The Older Testament demonstrates it. The revelation of God demonstrates it. We're going to briefly review seven of the 42 points that you've been given that highlight the aspects of the New Covenant. Uh, You've seen the slide before, but right after that, we're going to reread Jeremiah 31, 1 through 14 from last week. And we'll review seven points that you picked up then. Finally, we're going to finish our survey on the book of Consolation by reading Jeremiah 33, 14 through 26. And we'll expound on every line of the text. And there are some shocking things 
to New Testament believers in this. And they, the thing is, they're in the same chapters as the New Covenant. So you would think we would be intimately familiar with it. And we're not. And we're going to correct that. Because we want our faith in the actual plan of God and not what you would prefer it to be or some simplified version or what would occur in a book called like Gospel for Dummies. Okay, <laughs> we want to know the actual plan and we're capable of knowing it and understanding it. Amen. So we're going to begin our review. Would somebody pray for us though, help us out? It's been a gloriously busy day. So we're going to start out with the slide, and this is seven of our favorite highlights from Jeremiah 30, 31, and 32 that the newer covenant, the new covenant contains. Now, the first highlight that the new covenant contains is the certainty of the reunification of the houses of Israel, both the northern kingdom the ten tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah, they have to be united, and that is contained within the newer covenant. So when we say the new covenant, this is contained within that, found in Jeremiah 31, verse 1. Our second highlight was found in Jeremiah 31, and the next verse, verse 2. There will be a sword and sieve process. We discovered this in Amos chapter 9, verses 9 through 10 where the Lord was speaking through his prophet Amos, and he said, I'm going to put Israel uh, in a basket just like somebody would put grain in a sieve and shake it around. And what remains are those who are a penitent remnant, yep. those, who are, those who want to get it right with me, the remnant that I have reserved for myself who will look on me. Our third point is a time of trouble that is unprecedented for Israel. This was not to do away with them, but to refine them. Refinement looks like taking away what was bad and rebellious and leaving the penitent Israel. And it will be followed by a glorious salvation. This was from Jeremiah 31, verse 7. Our fourth point is from Jeremiah 31, 3. If you guys remember, we had an only son that came speaking of his love, his everlasting love, rather, for Israel. Amen. He came to meet those that had mourned for him, and they met together, and there was a beautiful reunification. Our fifth point was kind of a fun one because we got to triangulate between text. We got to look at the Masoretic text. We got to look at the... Septuagint text, we examined the Dead Sea Scrolls, we got to look at it every way that it could be said. And it's the connotative Israel, all of Israel, in every sense that you can think of Israel, will experience permanent salvation. 
and they will end up as a woman surrounding a man or a city of God surrounding the throne of God. We then got to see that that is also what the Newer Testament culminates in, in Revelation 21. The same imagery is consistent from the 6th century B.C. all the way through the 1st century A.D. The hope never changed. Israel never was redefined. The plan did not have to be amended. Our sixth highlight is that connotative Israel, both houses, will have the law put on their minds and they will have it on their hearts. They will all know Yahweh and they will all be forgiven. This is the new covenant. If you want to think of these other points as a preamble to the new covenant, this specifically is the new covenant and it is for Israel. That's a shocker for Gentiles hearing it the first time because we think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for us who came out of the Baptist church. This was promised to Israel in the new covenant that God gave Jeremiah. Number seven is a highlight that is a highlight that it's a continual revelation that's happening in us as the weeks in Jeremiah study go by. It's your faith in the reality of the truths that you're learning. It's You've got something inside of you that's like a treasure in a jar of clay. What you're learning about the nation of Israel is just like Jeremiah's title deed. The faith that you're displaying that the Lord will accomplish these things for his nation, Israel, well, it validates your co-heirship together with Israel. And you never would have a co-heirship without the nation of Israel. And we got that from Jeremiah 32 and verse 14. Look, when you're thinking of co-heir... I had an epiphany there in a moment. <laughs> Has anybody in here ever been so misfortunate as to co-sign on a loan for someone? <laughs> That's the sense in which you should think of co-heir. The document is theirs. It's their responsibility. It's their promises. It's their terms. It's their conditions. And the surprise was that you got to be a co-signer with them. Okay, that's the way to... Th- so the more you learn about what was promised to Israel, the more you're finding out what you're also responsible for and what you also get to inherit. Amen. But it is their document. Yeah. Yeah. In this moment, we're going to have Jen the Sexy Grandma help us out. Oh! <laughs> Spiritual sons in the house can speak on, right truth there, to the house. <laughs> Jen, if you can help us out, we're going to read Jeremiah 33, verses 1 through 14. It's all right, Jen. You can call for his 28 points of data slide that he made us in He's got and then after Jen reads this for us, we're going to go over seven more points of review. <laughs> While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer to answer you and tell you a great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in the city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege, ramps and the swords and the fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of 
anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of all of its wickedness. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and I will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. Amen. I will cleanse them from all of their sins, sin that they have committed against me, and I will forgive all of their sins of rebellion against me. This, this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe, and I will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. This is what the Lord says, you say about this place. It is a desolate waste without men or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be, a, will be heard once more the sound and joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring the thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without men or animals, in all of its towns, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flock. In the towns of hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again Pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill gracious promise that I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Amen. What a remarkable set of scriptures. Our first point we want to remind you of is the setting. Jeremiah is in the courtyard of the palace. Do you remember the setting of Lamentations? We read from Lamentations 2. This is Jeremiah's personal conversation with the Lord. He's talking one-on-one -on -one with the Lord. And Jeremiah is seeing the horrible atrocities that are happening around him. But what we learned is that in the greatest distress, the greatest consolation is predicted. And wasn't that the truth? Yeah. We even reviewed where men and women were devouring their own children. Yeah. Wow. The cities that were listed, as we just read the prior verses, were his own hometown that were in ruins. But in the midst of the setting that Peyton just described, number two was Yahweh announcing himself three times. Amen. You guys remember that? Yeah. He's reassuring Israel and Jeremiah in this personal conversation as the creator, as the one who made, formed, and will establish the world and the nation of Israel. Now, you guys see that note on Regalia Feast? Yeah. There's a correlation that we just wanted to hint at with you. So made, formed, established. This can be correlated to Pesach, the creation of Israel, to Shavuot, the forming of Israel at Sinai, and Sukkot, establishing Israel and the land. Mm -hmm. These are the three major feasts that the Lord is speaking a message to his people about. I am the one who created you. I am now shaping you, and I will establish you. Now, if you were particularly interested in that, you might ponder the patriarchs. Abraham, who was made or created into a nation. Isaac, who was formed in the womb as a promised 
son. He even reopened wells and reshaped the land that he was in. And Jacob, who was established as Israel, the prince with God. That's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You Acts 2 students will recognize creation, redemption, and restoration in that. All of Israeli structure, all of Israeli life, which was designed by God, continually speaks that message because Israel would need that reminder throughout the yeah. history of their nation. That's right. The same way that you, as a believer, might need the reminder that you're a new creation, yeah. <laughs> that he's still working into you what is pleasing, and he will establish you in the resurrection. Amen. I mean, these, these are so um, parallel because they're promises that were spoken to Israel that we derive promises for ourselves as well with, as co-heirs. Our third point of review was the great invitation that was given. You remember John the Revelator saw heaven coming down or uh, the old song that I remember Miss Joe singing <laughs> at our first few meetings, call him up and tell him what you want. Y'all don't remember those? Oh, yeah. Jeremiah 33, 3, say, call him up. I mean, uh, it's gone down in history as a great invitation to mankind that if we will call out to him, he'll reveal his plan to us. But it was first spoken to Jeremiah in a private conversation with God. See, we're benefiting from his personal walk with the Lord. And so did Jews throughout history. I imagine that John is sitting on the Isle of Patmos making Roman idols on a prison island contemplating what God told Jeremiah and he cries out to the Lord and on the Lord's day he was in the presence of the Lord and he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is quite an invitation that we benefit from. Our fourth point of review from last week is that verses 6 through 9 contain seven prophetic announcements. And they were joined by the word and, not then, as some translations read. Now this might seem like a small difference to you, but you've got to imagine Jeremiah is still uh, confined in the courtyard while it's being besieged. The battering rams are literally at the door of where he's being confined. And then it's like a father talking with his son. I'm going to take you to the park, and I'm going to buy you ice cream, and I bought you a new bicycle. It's already in the back of the truck, and then we can go buy you a toy after we leave the park. See, this is what God's doing with Jeremiah, and it's not a then statement like chronological order. He's saying, I will restore health to the nation, and I will heal it spiritually and physically, and Judah and Israel will be restored as they were from the first. And I will purify them, and I will forgive them, and I will make them a name of joy, praise, and glory, and every nation on earth will hear, fear, and tremble when I do this. Can you hear Jeremiah when God says, and? He's like, oh, and? There's more? That's because this is building emphasis in the Hebrew language as God speaks it. Not to belabor the point here, (laughs) but the best example that I've really heard about how to describe this actually came from Justin a few hours ago. He was describing a house that was purchased fully furnished. It has a refrigerator in it. It has a bed frame in it. It has everything that you need for your future life that has been prepared for you. 
not an order of events of things that you're bringing in. And there's a distinct difference in the kind of gift that God is giving. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Look, uh, without my glasses, I won't be able to read it. Let me just uh, suggest to you that the next time you're reading 1 John and you see if we're faithful to confess our sins, he does four specific things. Well, you might see what John was reflecting on because they have to do with purification, forgiveness, and uh, making whole. I mean, go back and look. I, I trust you'll be able to draw those parallels. Nothing written in the Newer Testament is written out of a vacuum. It's not just that like an automaton, the Spirit of God came upon them and they just wrote uh, mindlessly. Yeah. God used their vocabulary. He used their personality and he used their understanding of the Tanakh because the Tanakh is the foundation from which everything is written. You can literally see it in their vocabulary choices. Yeah. But that brings us to a fifth point of review. Yeah, so these seven items in point number four make up uh, the conglomerate restored house of Israel. And that's a connotative uh, usage of that word. The house of Israel as a whole restored. These seven things have to be present, which brings us to point number five. No events in history up to this point. We're talking about not Israel's reforms, not the Hasmonean dynasty, not the repatriation of 1948. None of those events or any others have fulfilled these things. So we're talking about certainly these are future fulfillments. They are going to come. They are to come. They have not come yet. As we continue to point six, the good shepherd. Now he's the good shepherd. He's not the okay shepherd or the decent shepherd. He will again carefully count the flocks under his care. We see the restoration of the land and the shepherd in his right place with his flocks passing under his hand close to him. Our seventh point came from the 14th verse. The days are coming when he will fulfill the gracious promise made to both houses. You're going to hear a continuation of the days that he's describing and everything that will be included in those days. Do y'all want to hear it? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is where Jennifer picks up in verse 15 and reads through the end. Y'all follow along carefully. Tonight is going to be a bit of a whirlwind.
of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with the day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. That's great news, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Look, we're going to read verse 15 again, and I'm going to prepare you. We're going to be in verse 15 for a little while. And almost, almost twice that time in verse 16. And then again, almost triple that time in verse 17. Okay? Uh, it'll be an in-depth Bible study. But it gives you the chance to see some things that growing up reading the four spiritual laws, waiting to die and go to heaven, which is almost not a biblical principle at all no. uh, well I think you'll find these enlightening okay and you might even find them grounding and if you've ever wondered how you're going to sit on a cloud as a fat naked baby in a white diaper <laughs> playing a harp forever you, you might find this encouraging there's, there's actual things we'll be doing so Mr. Linton if you'd pick up in verse 15 in those days and at that time I will make To start with, this passage picks up with the phrase, in those days. It refers to a period of time in which these events are portrayed as occurring. It doesn't say in that day, it says in those days. In other words, as the spiritual portrait is being given to Jeremiah, we're seeing overlapping events. We're seeing things that are included in a time period. To remind you of that time period, God is going to bring about health and restoration to the whole nation. God is going to bring healing and spiritually and physically to the whole nation. God is going to reunify Judah and Israel so that they're restored as they were from the first. God's going to purify them. God is going to forgive them. God is going to make them a name of joy and praise and glory. God will cause every nation on earth to hear, fear, and tremble. Now, during those days, God will make a righteous branch sprout from the line of David. Wow. Okay? Wow. That is the context of the new covenant. Yeah. And it should be read as an and. We don't exactly know the order. Like, it's like the bank robber that walks in and says, everybody freeze. Now get on the floor. Well, which is it? If I freeze, I can't get on the floor. <laughs> Instinctively, you know that he doesn't want you to lunge towards him, and he wants you to get on the floor. <laughs> These events are a kind of kaleidoscope that are being described. And it's the work of eschatology teachers, most of whom who want to sell books and don't know what they're talking about, to put them in very specific orders. What we're doing is painting the picture. God will sort out the order for us. Is that fair enough? Yes. But the whole thing begs a question. What is the righteous branch? Why does God not explain what he means by the righteous branch to David, to Jeremiah, rather? Well, I'm glad that you're asking those questions tonight because <laughs> we spent a lot of time preparing that answer. It's because Jeremiah already had a predecessor who introduced this very concept 
And Jeremiah was already expected to know what the righteous branch meant just from reading Isaiah. This is like reading Matthew 24, and he expects you to already know what Daniel said. And he refers to it. And he says, let the reader understand, because he expects you to have read it and engaged with it, and he's commenting on it. Well, in this case, Isaiah has already spoken about this. All right, so we're going to show you a chart you're familiar with. These are the biblical prophets, and you can see Isaiah. He's the second on the list. He lived from 750, or prophesied 750 to 695 B.C., now, if you slide on down to Jeremiah, he's the last highlighted one. Jeremiah prophesied between 628 and 588 B.C. So roughly 100 years before Jeremiah's ministry, Isaiah prophesied, and we have his writings. So right now we're going to look at what God revealed to Isaiah, because Jeremiah had Isaiah's work, and he was able to understand it. So we're going to bring you to Isaiah chapter 11, Verses 1 through 13. And as I read this, listen for some of the things that you've already heard in the last several weeks that we've been together. And you're going to see some parallels. So Isaiah 11 is an important chapter for you to mark in your Bible, by the way. Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, thank God, or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of its lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. That's a fun one in the King James. <laughs> and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. In that day, the root of Jesse. So in the day that the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Oh, no! To reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, which is Turkey, Iraq, from Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, from Cush, Northern Africa, from Elam, that is... Syria, from Babylonia, Iraq, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. Now clearly, there's a lot that we could cover in Isaiah 11. 
But for our purposes tonight, we want to focus on the concept of a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch that bears fruit and the root of Jesse. Now, it should be noted that the context of Isaiah 11, like Jeremiah that we've been studying, it involves the reunification of Israel. You saw that Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. But we will be speaking of the shoot, the branch, and the root for now. We're going to study that. So our, where we're going to begin is we're going to look at a couple Hebrew words here. So I want to put a slide for you. And this is from the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary. He's commenting on Isaiah 11, verse 1. And he says, the stump, the messianic branch, will appear as a shoot from the stump of David. The terms for shoot. So shoot is koter in Hebrew. Branch is netzer. And root is shoresh. Now, these are all words that are connected, messianic terms. Now, you have the branch, which is in Hebrew, netzer. The Hebrew name for Nazareth is netzeret, or netzar. So you can hear some similarities there, can you? Now, there's also another term that's closely related to this, because the Jews notice that these terms are connected, and they've developed a term in the Talmud and the modern Hebrew for a Christian. And you know what they call them? A Nutsri, meaning plural, those who follow the netzer, the branch. So even when slightly different Hebrew terms are used, it's important to realize that they are all synonyms and they are messianic imagery when you're looking at all of these in the Bible. There is a strong correlation to the word Nazareth or netzeret and the concept of the branch or netzer in Hebrew and that is obscured in, obscured in English spellings, but it's obvious in Hebrew spellings. When, you, when you're in Israel and you're looking for Nazareth, it doesn't exist. But when you read the sign, it's Netzareth. It's Nazareth. Uh, however you want to pronounce it, you can see it on the sign. This, this has caused many misunderstandings in, in English-speaking realms. The word Nazarene doesn't exist in Hebrew. Yeah, so the Nazarene sect, you can kind of see where they got that wrong. We're about to read from Matthew 2. The context is going to pick up right after Herod has slaughtered all of the male babies two years old and under. And you're going to see the Jewish writer of Matthew. You're going to see the connections he makes. Do you all catch the context real quick? Think, think right before uh, what we celebrate around Christmas. We've just had descendants of David going to their ancestral home uh, because there's a census happening. And we've had magi from the east appear and every male child is being slaughtered that is two years and down. Okay, that's the context we're picking up in. So this is Matthew 2 starting in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, 
And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this passage, granted, it's, it's proven to be difficult for many New Testament readers. And it's precisely because they don't understand the nature of this newer covenant that we've been studying about for weeks now. The Tanakh does not contain any prophecy that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene because he lived in Nazareth. That would be absolutely missing the point of the prophecy. What is Matthew's point then? Is it because he lived in Nazareth? No, we're going to argue not tonight. And we're going to show you a slide that helps prove this point for you. The title of the slide says, He Shall Be Called a Nazarene. We wanted to use Easton's Bible Dictionary and Holman Bible Dictionary and highlight the definition of Nazareth. So Easton's Bible Dictionary says that Nazareth means separated, generally supposed to be the Greek form of the Hebrew netzer, a shoot or a sprout. Okay, we're going back to the prophets now. You're beginning to see the correlation of what the prophets were talking about. Look at Holman for a moment. Nazareth, place name meaning branch. So in this moment, you can correlate all of these prophecies throughout the prophets that when they were talking about shoot, when they were talking about sprout, when they were talking about branch, Matthew understood these things. We're the ones that are trying to catch up here tonight. When Matthew read prophetic books like Isaiah, when he read Jeremiah, and he saw a shoot, a root, a branch, would arise from the lineage of Jesse. When in context you see Jesus surviving the slaughter of the innocents and moving to a town named Branch, or a town named Shoot. This was a double picture of what Isaiah had said. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It was a fulfillment of that prophecy, but not because he was simply born or lived in that town. It was because the the town actually was intrinsically linked with these definitions found in the prophets. He was called a Nazarene. Jews, they value function over everything else. And the function of the netzer is that he comes up out of something that looks like death and he brings life. Yeah. And that is what is happening in Matthew 2. And the town that he goes to happens to be named for the same kind of prophecy. He's not called the Nazarene because he's from Nazareth. Nazareth is called Netzareth because they were waiting for the Netzer to arrive. That's Matthew's point. This gets even clearer when you see the the context. Did anyone just learn something new? Yeah. That was new to me, and this is beautiful. This is an excerpt from A.G. Fruchtenbaum. Ooh, Ooh. Fruchtenbaum. We're about to drop a Fruchtenbaum on you. (laughs) Fruchtenbaum. The picture given is of a tree which has been cut down, leaving only a dead stump. A single shoot remains growing low, near to the ground, eventually bearing fruit. It is interesting that this particular prophecy does not use the name of David, but uses the name of David's father, Jesse. Hmm. David is normally associated with kingship. Does anyone disagree with that? No. No. Royalty and wealth. It should not be forgotten, however, that in his youth, living in the house of Jesse, David was a poor shepherd boy. 
During the lifetime of David, the house of, house of Jesse was raised from poverty in Bethlehem to honor and majesty in Jerusalem. The emphasis of verse 1 is that although Messiah will be a descendant of David, he will not appear until the house of David has been once again reduced to what it was in the days of Jesse. This verse concentrates on the lowly origin of Messiah at the time of his birth, rather than the majesty of his kingdom, which will be seen at his second coming. From the stump of Jesse, however, grows a shoot, low to the ground, but not without fruit. Eventually, this shoot will become a tree in its own right. See, Matthew understood the context of the newer covenant. The line of David would appear to be all but dead, and yet a new growth from humble origins would arise to reunify Israel as well as usher in the knowledge of the glory of God throughout the earth. Come on, somebody. Now, the Hebrew phrasing in Isaiah indicates a process is involved over time to accomplish all of that. Let's look at some more commentary from Ogden. So this is Isaiah 11.1, 1, and this comes from a larger work that is the United Bible Societies. The Hebrew text of this verse opens and closes with a verb. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. It begins and it ends with a verb. It is literally, will come forth a shoot. From his roots will bear fruit. This unusual chiastic structure draws attention to the verbs. All right. Can I get a show of hands who remembers what a chiastic structure is? You are used to seeing that just in a literary standpoint. And this is a literary device, but it's in the verbs itself, the actual tenor. The shoot first had to appear out of a seemingly dead stump, and then suddenly would from his roots bear fruit. The idea is that the shoot is the bottom of the chiastic structure at the dead stump, and then something arises suddenly that is a verb, that is a change, that is an action. This should draw your attention to the first and second comings of Jesus that are needed to accomplish the reunification of Israel and a global age of peace. You need to be warned to avoid the temptation of seeing this as totally fulfilled in the incarnation, crucifixion, or resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. There are clearly specific details that are not yet complete in what this shoot will do. They will be complete at the second coming, when incidentally also means that the second coming could not have occurred in the first century. There's more left on the table from this. So just to expand on that a little bit, the phrase opens with a verb that something is coming forth. The phrase ends with a verb that says that it will bear fruit. And what's in the middle is the noun. What, what, what has no parallel in it is the shoot itself. Just the sentence structure indicates first a coming forth, then a being seen as a shoot, and then fruit that would come. And the context of both Jeremiah and Isaiah is about the reunification of Israel. Well, he first has to come forth and be identified as the Netzer. And then, at some point later, the second action in the clause is that he bears the fruit that the new covenant was intended to bring, the reunification of Israel. 
As a reminder, we've discussed seven things that will coincide with the complete work of the shoot, yeah. the branch, or the root. We want to throw this on the screen again for you right now. So this branch will complete the health and the restoration to the nation, healing spiritually and physically to the entire nation. Judah and Israel will be restored as they were from the first. Everybody tracking with from the first? Yeah. Yeah. We're not being restored back to a rebellious state. We're being restored back to a totally unified, right with God kind of state. Purified and forgiven, they will be made a name of joy, praise, and glory, and every nation on earth will hear, fear, and tremble. Hey, it wouldn't feel right if we didn't comment on Isaiah 11, 2, though, before going back to Jeremiah. So we're going to do Isaiah 11, 2, just because, because we can. I mean, there's, because the Pope can't stop us. That's, that's why we're going to do it. I, I do want you to to start to put together some things you're learning. Do you believe in the second return of Jesus Christ? Yes. Now you need to know what you believe he accomplishes at his second, at, at his second coming, okay? To say, well, he's coming back to rapture me? No, no, that, that's, that's not what Isaiah promises. That's not what Jeremiah promises. To say he's coming back just to save me? No, no, these seven things that are on the screen, they have to be accomplished. That's, that's the point of both the appearance of the shoot, his coming forth, and the fruit that he will bear, and it's why there's two comings. But would y'all like to do Isaiah 11 too? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to start in one again because I can. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. See, in verse 2, we're told that this shoot or branch, he'll have a sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. The description used here is representative of a Jewish menorah or a seven-branched lampstand if you are just intent to never learn what a menorah is. <laughs> The Spirit of the Lord is mentioned once, followed by three more references that are the Spirit of. And each time you hear the phrase, the Spirit of, it's followed by two attributes. Let me show you what that might look like in this next slide. That center branch on the menorah, the vertical, the upright, is the Spirit of the Lord. The three branches on the menorah that say spirit of, spirit of, spirit of, each have two attributes that form seven burning lamps. That's a, that's a picture that every Jew would understand, that anybody that had seen the tabernacle would understand, is speaking of why this particular shoot, root, or netzer of David is so unique and able to accomplish what he does. As we move forward, you need to know something. Messiah, well, he had to be born of the house of David, or all of the prophets are wrong. Equally, the Messiah would not be born until the house of David had once again returned to a state of poverty, like it was in the days of David's 
father, Jesse. Messiah would be born into a lowly state. That would be easy to miss, but that's what the imagery is conveying. Messiah would have the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit and act accordingly. The Spirit of God would cause him to. Messiah will accomplish the reunification of both houses of Israel as one nation. Everywhere you see the word branch, that's what it's implying because that's the prophecies that are the parent of the term. Since Isaiah indicates that there will be a second exodus, it's likely that Messiah's second appearance, his second appearance, will be when the house of David looks like a stump again. If the first time he came forth, the house of David was a stump and it was surprising new life, and there is a second time where he bears fruit, it may very well be picture the same dire circumstances and Isaiah seems to indicate that when he says I will reach out my hand a second time I'll drive the Gulf of Egypt I will strike the Assyrians and you'll be able to walk over the Nile in sandals it seems to be speaking of a second event that looks like a resurrection again what this stump and new shoot are ultimately hinting at constantly is the hope of the resurrection. When it looks dead, when it looks like there's no hope, when it looks like God cannot do it, if there's just one faithful, he will do it. In fact, Job 14, verses 7 through 9, perhaps one of the oldest books in the Bible, says this, At least there is a hope, there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again. It will what? Sprout again. And its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. Y'all hear it? That's probably written before Israel was a nation. And yet, it's a prophetic pronouncement. They're all over the Bible. Peyton spent most of the day running down every, every reference to any synonym for branch in Hebrew. It's extraordinary. There's almost no prophet that doesn't mention some version of it. And it's, it's so emblematic of Jesus that to this day, as a term of derision, the Talmud and Jews who read the Talmud refer to us this way. Wow. It's not that we're followers of Nazareth. It's not that we are Nazarenes. It's that we have accepted that Jesus is the Netzer. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. But you need to remember what the Netzer does. <laughs> he reunifies Israel. He heals Israel. All right, let's pick up in, in verse uh, 15 and read on down to 16. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, So this verse in the Peshat says that the appearance of the branch is about the salvation of Judah and the safety of Jerusalem. That when the branch appears, this is what will happen. It also says in the Peshat that Jerusalem will be called the Lord our righteousness. Man, that's incredible, isn't it? 
But there's more going on in this text than you may have thought. I want to show you a slide, and we're going to show you some other passage in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5 through 6, Jeremiah proclaims, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So earlier in Jeremiah, it's talking about the branch and the name that he will be called by. Now in Jeremiah 33, 16, it says, In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, it being Jerusalem, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So you're seeing that both share the same name. (laughs) This is that bride and groom coming together and receiving the same name. Now, in Hebrew, if you're going to refer to a a city, it, it gets a feminine ending on the word. So the Masoretic here says this is the name by which she will be called. In other words, the groom and the bride, the branch and the city, they're called by the same name. They share a name, just like the Tisdales share a name. See, if we were going to do it really biblically, we would have put her at the altar waiting for him, and he would have returned, and when he did, he would have given her his name. Since we're somewhat chauvinistic, he stood at the altar and we waited for her to come to him. But this is marriage imagery. So the next time, with that in mind, that you read Revelation 19 and think of the wedding of the Lamb, you should be envisioning the wedding as taking place between the Messiah, who's called the righteous branch of David, and the city of Jerusalem. Revelation 21 also makes it abundantly clear that the city and the bride are the same entity. Remember, a woman will surround a man? But if that's difficult for you to understand, we have a passage that puts it for you succinctly in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Check it out. Revelation 3, 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So picture this with us for a moment. The father is the one who steps forward. He says, by the power invested in myself, I now pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Come on, that was better than you acted like. The bride and the groom get that new name, get the name of righteousness, and they both share it now. Because they're unified, they're together in perfect unity. Now, Nick, we have have almost as many weddings happening as we have babies being born in this church. There's a correlation. We hadn't figured out how that's happening. But... (laughs) But it's interesting to think of this as a wedding because weddings usually have motifs, settings, colors, themes, those kind of things. How would that work? So 
There is a particular setting for the wedding. Uh, it is where you have a Judah being saved and a Jerusalem living in safety. That's kind of like the venue. The groom is Davidic and the bride is Jerusalem. You guys getting these two entities, these yeah. two parties becoming one? We have also a wedding theme. The theme of the wedding is the Lord, our righteous Savior. Come on. Come on. Not Are mine, you getting in? Not yeah. yours. The theme of the wedding to come is the Lord, our righteous Savior. Yeah. Hey, while we take a little uh, side note here, that would be a good theme for any wedding. Yeah. What, what if we were not nearly as interested in what the hors d'oeuvres or horiadors, if you're from Texas, are? And we were more interested in just presenting the Lord as our righteous Savior. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a good way to do weddings? Yeah. Praise the Lord. You can do jello shots too if you want, but I would prefer <laughs> I would prefer that the singular theme of every wedding for all time is the Lord our righteous Amen. Savior. Yeah. We're Gentiles, but we're gonna get it right. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, gonna get, get it. this. We're learning more and more every day. We're gonna, we're gonna get this thing right. As we continue in verses 17 and 18, you are going to see some truly incredible things in these next two verses. I cannot wait for us to unpack it. Are y'all bored? No! We're having such a good time doing this today. And I got to tell you, it gets, uh, it gets rather shocking from here. So you'll go home, consult your Bible difficulties books, and debate amongst yourselves. And the good news is, we're just going to tell you what the right answer is up front. <laughs> 17 and 18. This is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites. What? Nor will the priests who are Levites. What? Nor will the priests who are Levites. Oh, okay. <laughs> comes after the book of Jeremiah. I just want you to know that it's not possible for the book of Hebrews to replace the book of Jeremiah. If you can grant us that, there's a chance you'll learn something here. Yeah. So the first point from verse 17 is that it's very clear in the Peshat yeah. that David's kingdom is permanent. Does yeah. anyone disagree? No. Okay, so we won't go through a long list of proof text of things that are plainly stated. But what is more surprising to most Christians is that the Levites are permanent, perpetual, and will be perfected, much like David's kingship. To illustrate that, we're going to go through something very interesting. Are you guys uh, it, We don't need to. They clearly know it. I can tell by the deafening silence in this room that they already understand it. Hey, let's go get a taco and a beer. I mean... <laughs> Let's go to Numbers 25, because if you're not interested, I'm interested, and I would like to review some of the things that the Lord showed me today. This is Numbers 25, verses 10 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was zealous, as, as zealous as I am, for my honor among them, so that in my zeal 
I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood. What kind? Lasting. Because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Zechariah presents, uh, Zechariah 3, so the prophet Zechariah, he presents a branch snatched from the fire that we all know represents Jesus. Here, Phinehas is a righteous Levite snatched from the fires of compromise. Both the branch and the Levites are perpetually, everlastingly guaranteed in the kingdom of God coming on the world. The repeated theme is that if there is only only a remnant of even one man, say one man. One man. One man who honors the Lord, then God will use them to bring about what he has promised for Israel. Come on, that is incredible. Are you following that one man that will stand up and be zealous for the Lord? The Lord will say, I will use that to bring about my promises. He's, he's not weak and feeble like some people try to depict him. He is a warrior, and he can do with one man who will follow him what he wants to accomplish. Come on. Now, you know it's a good Bible study when you're studying with men that have pages and pages of notes on this particular subject, but we had to pick a few verses. (laughs) So our next one comes from the writings. To be honest, our biggest debate was not about any interpretation today. It was about which of the 700 scriptures we were going to cut out to fit this in the (laughs) timeline. Yeah. So we elected to use Psalm 106, verse 28 through 31. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Do a Hebrew word study on what that means at some point. It's yucky. (laughs) And eight sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They provoked the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds. And a plague broke out among them. But Phinehas, not Phineas, but Phinehas. (laughs) I love you, Pastor. Stood up and intervened. And the plague was checked. Anybody remember how he intervened? Yeah. Yeah. Spirit! Hear this next part. This was credited to him as righteousness. Man, you thought that was just Paul's commentary on Abraham. Interesting. Credited righteousness for endless generations to come. By endless. (laughs) What do you mean? I mean... We read the Bible literally, unless it disagrees with something we were taught in Sunday school. Because I kind of think by endless it means without ending. Not only is Phineas considered righteous forever, but also his descendants. Levites that would never fail to have a man standing before Yahweh to minister on his behalf. Can I show you this in the book of Malachi? Yeah. Would that be all right? He's our Italian prophet tonight. <laughs> there are no Gentile prophets uh, that, that make it anyway. <laughs> I mean, you, you can quote Balaam if you want to, but it's a pretty desperate hope. Malachi 2.4. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue. Yeah. Just in case you're unaware of biblical chronology, Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. The Levites don't come about 
for between two and four hundred years after Levi dies. This is a covenant with the man, Levi, and the Levites later come from him. Okay? Course corrections, such as the entire book of Malachi, or the latter chapters of Ezekiel, where the priests of Zadok are isolated and others are excluded. They're simply to ensure that God's promise of perpetual Levitical priesthood comes about as he said it would. Okay? I want you to see what Malachi goes on to say because, well, it's somewhat shocking. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yes. Malachi 3.3. Y'all there? Yes. yes, we're all staring at the screen. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Think about that next time you're singing about God's refining fire for you. Then, somebody say then. Then. The Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. As in days gone by, as in former years. Look, if you find it remarkable that the Levitical priesthood is promised to continue forever under the new covenant, then you're going to fall out of your chair when you closely examine what it is that they will be doing. Malachi says that they will bring offerings in righteousness. And Ezekiel goes much, much further than that. Can we show you? Yes. So if you're not, if you weren't shocked when you first heard this, it's because you didn't know why you should be shocked. Most of you are good Bible students in this room and you've learned in this house. It is a shocking thing to most Christians to find out that the Levitical priesthood will continue into eternity and why they will continue offering sacrifices into eternity that are acceptable to the Lord. Most Christians would say we don't need sacrifices in eternity because Jesus paid it all on the cross. But that's I, don't, not... I don't need an F-450, but I like having one. <laughs> These are things God is pleased with. If you're shocked by what Jeremiah... <laughs> he is. He is. If you're shocked by what Jeremiah says, you'll be even more shocked when you look into Ezekiel. But first, I want to show you on a slide, we have the pulpit commentaries, uh, commentary on Jeremiah 33, verse 18. And the reason why we're using these commentaries is because we found it a little difficult to consolidate all the information that we could, and these guys helped us. Besides, if you don't like it, you can take it up with them instead of us. (laughs) (laughs) So he's reading Jeremiah 33, 18, and he starts talking about Ezekiel. He says, moreover, Ezekiel, who repeats the prophecy of the new spiritual covenant, and he lists these scriptures. You see them in parentheses? Ezekiel 11, 19, Ezekiel 36, 26, Ezekiel 37, 26, are expansions of what God gave Jeremiah, and you're seeing them happen in these chapters. Then, Ezekiel, after giving that commentary, he gives an elaborate sketch of the new temple with a sacrificial system in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. You can see the same kind of progression in Jeremiah as Ezekiel. Now, I'm going to read to you a slide from a man named Phinehas. Phineas! Phineas Dake, and uh, his parents spelled his name wrong. They spelled it F I N I S. 
But Phineas Dake, he gives us an outline of those chapters, Ezekiel 40 through 48. And it's going to spare us from having to read eight additional chapters tonight. What Justin is about to read to you, what he's about to, he's about to take you through this slide, but as he takes you through these points, you have to understand something. As we're reading through, you need to be picturing the temple in the millennial reign. You need, this is the setting that we're talking about when we're reading through these nine chapters of Ezekiel. So Justin's going to hit the highlights. This is what the Levites are going to be doing as they minister before the Lord their God in Jerusalem throughout the millennial reign. So he begins, the visions of Ezekiel 40 through 48 concern things in the millennium immediately following the regathering of Israel, Ezekiel 37, and the battle of Armageddon in Ezekiel 38 and 39. These millennial conditions will continue in the new earth period throughout all eternity. Are you ready? So in Ezekiel 40, number one, it talks about the future and eternal capital of all the earth. Can you guess where that is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He moves on to the rebuilt eternal temple. The temple will re be rebuilt yet again in Ezekiel 45 through 43, 12. Then he begins to outline a couple things. He outlines the outer and inner courts and the gates of that new temple. Then he begins to talk about the priest rooms. Now, why would we have priests? Because God wants them throughout all eternity. Then he begins to outline the altar court. You mean there will be an altar in the rebuilt temple? Of course. He begins to outline the temple itself. Then he talks about the outer wall, all four sides, and the incredible dimensions that this new temple will be. Yeah. Then he talks about the returning glory and the restored monarchy to that temple and to Jerusalem. Then he moves on to the sacrificial altar what? that will be in that eternal temple on earth. You see, there's not just going to be a temple without sacrifices. There will be a sacrificial altar. Then he moves on in Ezekiel to the ordinances of the altar. Ordinances like laws that are reorganized services that the Levites and priests will be performing for all eternity. Then he starts talking about the restored priesthood, not the old priesthood, but the priesthood restored for all eternity. Then, here's a favorite word for everybody, talks about the holy oblation, which means... <laughs> it's only, only the women in this room know what an oblation is. <laughs> Which means a gift, the new division of the land that will be done in the millennium. Then it talks about the new civil and religious laws that will be established in the millennium. All of you, are y'all breathing? Y'all still breathing? You mean to say that there will be new civil and religious laws? I thought we were done away with the law. No, for eternity there will be new religious laws. Then he goes on to the millennial river that will flow out of the temple and into the Dead Sea and into the Mediterranean Sea. Then he talks about the new division of the land. Then we have another holy oblation or a gift, including the temple and the city sites. And can you guess who that gift is for? Well, it's for Israel. Can, can I tell you why you haven't been raised knowing these things? Is, that, is it all right if I'm just honest with you? Because you were lied to. You were told, all I got to do is believe on Jesus and go to heaven. 
That is a nursery rhyme that the Bible does not teach. I just want you to know that. To start with, heaven is coming this way, yeah. okay? It will be set up on the earth. Jesus prayed it that way. The Beatitudes talk about the meek inheriting the earth. It's a good word. It is a complete fiction sold to stupid people. <laughs> and, and you say, wait a minute, are you calling me stupid? I'm saying we inherited stupid things from stupid people. <laughs> when it didn't fit into their scheme, they simply ignored it or allegorize it. But the truth is, God is establishing a kingdom on the earth. And we are now going to look at some of the facets of that kingdom on the earth because we are not, in fact, just worshiping the Lord forever in heaven. Yeah. That is not what the Bible teaches. It never has. We are not, in fact, just living on a cloud for eternity. We were created from the earth to stand on the earth with the breath of heaven inside of us as ministers on God's behalf. Yeah. Okay. We're about to move on to some passages that will help to paint a picture for you about what kind of activities might be going on during the millennial reign. What life, what life might look like for the period of those thousand years. But before we move on, we wanted to read a passage from Isaiah 56 to you. Because it's easy to go through a list like this in Ezekiel 40 through 48 and to say, well, you know, that's cool. I'm learning something new tonight. I'm learning something new about Israel, about the temple, about Jerusalem, about the perpetual priesthood of Levi. This it's is, probably just for those Jews. It's just for Israel. <laughs> it's those Jews. I know something new. I got something I can talk about with my coworkers tomorrow. They're not going to believe me, but whatever. Or who can understand Ezekiel? <laughs> Isaiah 56, in light of... What you've just learned is going to blow up on, for you tonight. Starting in verse 6, it says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, Amen. to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship Him. Do we have anybody who has bound themselves to the Lord? That's right. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant, these... I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt who, offerings. Whose? The foreigners. That's who we're talking about here. The burnt offerings of the foreigners. The sacrifices of the foreigners will be accepted on my altar. Hey, just take out your black highlighter and fix it so it fits more easily in your theology. And here's the icing on the cake. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Oh, now we recognize it. Yeah. yeah. For, for all the foreigners and all the nations, there is going to be an opportunity to participate in this altar, in these sacrifices. But the Lord is looking for foreigners who are willing to bind themselves to him, who are willing to serve him. And at that point, when they show up in Jerusalem, for those regalia feasts ready to sacrifice, their sacrifices will then become pleasing and acceptable to God. Come on. On another night, not tonight, because we still got a lot more scriptures to cover, Paige. We might discuss Hebrews 7. We might discuss Psalm 110. But you should know that there are at least two discernible perpetual priesthood, priesthoods in the Bible. Not one, but two. There's one that derives itself from Melchizedek, 
And Jesus is the high priest of this priesthood. And then there's another one that was ordained of heaven, but it began on the earth. And that's the Levitical priesthood. Both of these are in the service of Yahweh, and both are in the service for his purposes. Now, thinking about these two perpetual priesthoods in the word, we wanted to just drop a hint for you. Remez. We wanted to drop a remez for you regarding a man named Jethro that we saw in Exodus 18, 19. Jethro in this light, the notice that the next time that you notice this priest from Midian, outside of Israel, but a Midianite priest, he eats and drinks in the presence of God together with the Levites, with the elders, with Moses, although he was not a Jew. Think through that for a minute. <laughs> Let that settle on you. I don't think they got it. It's okay. Think about it now. You'll understand it later. <laughs> Suffice it to say that most of our problems come from a heaven-centric view. Can anybody admit that tonight? Yeah. The wrong view of heaven, the wrong view of going to a different place off of this planet, the wrong view of flying around in white, that's corrupted most of the things that we read about in the Word, especially the millennial reign. Yeah. We wanted to help you out with that tonight. Amen. Somebody say amen. 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 Let's take a minute. And Peyton is going to help us as we look at some of the characteristics of the millennial age to come. Okay, are you guys ready? Yes. This is Isaiah 16, 4 through 5. The oppressor will come to an end. Yay! And destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. Are you guys seeing where this is going? Yeah. One from the house of... One who is judging seeks one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Now Nick mentioned that we have a heaven-centric view that it's this place that we go to. Or if you've just read the book of Revelation, you might think that the millennial reign is Jesus sitting on a throne, not doing much. But we know that it'll be he'll be descended from David, and that he's busy about his business. <laughs> He's executing justice. Yeah. Now I'm going to kick it over to Judah for Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4. So look, as this picture is building, we have a Davidic son sitting on a throne that is on the earth in Israel, and he's judging from that throne. Yeah. A process is being described here. This is Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Mm. Uh, as I'm finishing this passage, just bear in mind, mountains symbolize nations all throughout the Bible. And I'll give you some references for that. You can check out Jeremiah 51:25. Numerous instances throughout Daniel, the entire book of Obadiah uses this kind of imagery. Psalm 37 says it. Psalm 72 says it. Revelation 17 says it. But when we say mountains, then nations. Mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth 
from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So you're saying that we just go to heaven, right, Judah? Yeah, and uh, we're just going to be floating around and worshiping. Uh, this passage makes it clear that distinct nations, national entities, will be intact during the millennial reign. They will be recognized as separated nations. That the nation of Israel, who's distinct still all the way into the millennium and never will be treated as one of many nations, not just the same as the rest of the Goyim. It's a myth that needs to be dispelled. Will be raised as chief above every other nation. And they'll see it before their eyes. Even after the return of Christ. Yep. Now those that are obedient among the nations, they will stream towards Jerusalem. Right? The ruler will judge and render decisions from his throne in Jerusalem. Then hear this part, please. The law will go out. Uh, no, I mean, if you want to talk. Uh, the law will go out from Jerusalem. Guys, imagine this for just a moment. We've heard thousands of years of preaching and teaching about how the law is now irrelevant. And this passage in Isaiah is saying the actual culmination of all things is I will elevate Jerusalem, I will elevate the nation of Israel, I will render decisions from Israel, and then the law, the Tanakh and Torah, will go out into the distinct nations that still have not learned to obey me. Wow. But men will, and they will stream towards Jerusalem. Wow. It's almost like God is creating a firstborn priest that is made of many nations, but is Israeli-centric. Uh, and that that new nation, maybe the Israel of God, still ministers to other nations. Look, let's go to Zechariah 8 for a minute. Come on. In Zechariah 8, beginning in verse 20, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. You have to engage with that for a minute. Number one, it's never happened. Okay? If ten men are grabbing hold of one Jew, there's a gas chamber involved. Okay? The prophetic announcement about the kingdom of God coming on earth centers in Israel. And the fact that you and I could be included in that was a glorious mystery, but there are still members of nations that are being ministered to after the return of Christ, which begs a huge question that I'm not going to answer tonight. What is left for them? They cannot be in Christ and be what you are, but there must be something for them. Yeah. 
And we are ministering to them. Wow. Next time you read Isaiah 60 through 65, that ought to change the way that you view that. Yeah. God is forming what he wants on the earth, and it does not end when Jesus was incarnated, when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was resurrected, or when Jesus returns. It's almost like there was this little problem after a garden, and we don't reset the clock until we're back in a garden in Revelation 21, and we still have not accomplished what God wants. We've just gotten back to the starting place of where, where we should have begun. Okay? If that's not mind-blowing to you, you're not paying attention. But maybe Amos 9 will, will catch your heart. Look, if you're in this scripture string and you're just wondering why we're here, it's because we asked the same question that you asked when you heard about the Levites. So yes, it's surprising that the Levites are there for eternity. But what are they doing? What's going on? Why are the Levites needed in eternity? Well, we don't know if we can answer all of those questions. But from this string, we can see that there's still work to do in the millennial reign. That it's not just over when Christ returns for a thousand years. We sit there and eat grapes and continue the Feast of Abraham. There is still work to do in Amos 9, 11. Verse 12, uh, 11 through 12 says it. It says, In that day I will raise up the fallen tent of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So there's rebuilding going on. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So you see the kingdom under the descendant of David. He ushers in a time that the kingdom led by the son of David will begin to possess other nations that bear the name of the Lord. Are you catching that? There begins an influx into this kingdom of other nations that bear the name of the Lord. Now you might ask. These guys feel like they just took the pill in Matrix and now they want to go back to the fantasy. (laughs) You might ask why would the Levites be needed? Well, it could be that there are a lot of very dumb Gentiles that are being included into Israel as this process comes and we need teachers. Or not included into Israel. Yep. The body of Christ is complete and yet there remains something for them. Yeah. There remains a role for them. Yeah. Like a child born in the millennium. Not to two people who are glorified. They're not being married and given in marriage, but to two people who were not glorified. Wow. Wow. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. We can't talk about activities in the millennial reign without visiting Isaiah 60. <laughs> so we're going to go to Isaiah 60 together. You guys turn there. We're going to start in verse 1. Let's walk through this Oh, together. this is a good one. You guys will enjoy this. As we read through Isaiah 60, think about, well, before you start thinking about it, throw away those past perceptions that you had about what the thousand-year millennial reign might look like and listen to Isaiah's words. I'm okay if you don't even think it's a thousand years. I think you're wrong, but if you don't, (laughs) it's okay. How about just the description of what is called throughout the Bible the age to come? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can I tell you we're not in it yet? (laughs) Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, 
and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. You see, Jerusalem and Israel are going to raise up as the highest of the mountains. And it's going to be so evident that it's going to be like light is shining on God's people and his nation. And like all the rest of the nations are dwelling in darkness. Wow. Almost It'll like Egypt. so evident. His people and his place and his plan will be so glorified that the nations won't be able to deny it any longer. Nick, where have we ever read before about darkness covering the earth, but God saying, let there be light? Hmm. Anybody have an answer? Okay. And of course, also in Goshen during the first exodus. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Sure is. There will be nations that want to flock to this light because they're seeing it and they want, they want a part of it. It's so evident that they want to participate. And they got a job. They got a trabajo. Look at verse 4. Proyecto. <laughs> <laughs> Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. So who's, who's carrying the sons and daughters of Israel back to Israel? Oh, it's Gentiles. Yeah, Gentiles are carrying Jews back to the land of Israel. Isaiah 49. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. That's something, right? Yeah. The wealth of the seas brought to Israel. To you, the riches of the nations will come. That's right. The riches of all the nations surrounding are going to be flooding into the nation of Israel. It's almost like the globe is tithing to the priestly nation. Yeah. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. Wow. The rams of Naboth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar. What? Oh. Rams. Oh my what? God, there it is again. I didn't. I thought it was like a, two or three passages that were isolated in the word, but <laughs> now we're seeing it all over the place. We can't get away from it. Going every which way. And I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Wow. Surely the islands look to me. In the in the lead are the ships of Tarshish. Bringing your sons from afar. Because the ships of Tarshish usually took you the other way. Ask Jonah. (laughs) (laughs) With their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Uh, It's easy to see. All the nations are coming to Israel, and they are endowing. They're bringing tribute to the nation of Israel. Foreigners will rebuild your walls. Amen. They're Whoa. construction projects going on. You mean Gentiles are in Israel rebuilding walls around Jerusalem and around the cities. Let's to be clear, the there'll be no plumbing, though. Yes. <laughs> God wouldn't include that in the age to come. Judah's writing that contract. <laughs> and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night. So that men may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. Yeah, it's not just people from the nations bringing wealth, bringing tribute. Actually, the leaders of those other nations, they're coming and streaming into Jerusalem as well. 
for the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. Yeah. It will be utterly ruined. Yeah, if the king doesn't show up, you guys don't get rain. You guys get famine. Read Zechariah 14, or maybe we will in a little bit. And did you hear that the gates of the city are never shut day or night? Yeah. Where else have you read that? Revelation 21. Okay? This is not different than the description of the city in Revelation 21. Your thoughts about it are different. Because this sounds more like, I don't know, normal godly living. And when you read Revelation 21, you think about it as some kind of celestial habitation. These two things merge. And they merge on the earth. And what we're hearing about is the kingdom of God restored, exemplified in Israel, ministering to the world. And one has to ask, just I wasn't going to do this. We said we weren't going to do it, but I lied. (laughs) If the Holy of Holies was special to all of Israel and Jerusalem was special to all of Israel and Israel is special to all of the world, once he's got the complete planet like he wants, I can't imagine what that might be special to. God likes to start somewhere and grow out from there, okay? I assure you that our job is not to be fat, naked babies playing harps. I wouldn't like that for eternity. You wouldn't like that for eternity. There are real, actual things to to be accomplished, and this is painting that picture of that, okay? We need to get out of the off-world mentality. That idea of Elysium, that idea uh, of just heaven somewhere else, it is not biblical. There's not a single verse in the Bible that teaches you to believe on Jesus, die, and go to heaven. Every verse in the Bible teaches that belief in Jesus will cause you to participate in the world to come, which is heaven on earth. It's been preached so wrong for so long that Christians are walking around confidently asserting something that they have no biblical foundation for. I don't know, Pastor. This seems to really challenge the idea of rest and peace. (laughs) You know, if you think that you're going to die and just rest from your work, like if you're a single man struggling with the idea that you have to work, it seems like we're going to be working in the millennium. It seems like us Gentiles are going to have to start getting it because we're going to be rebuilding things. Adam was working in the garden before sin was present. Yeah, Yeah, he was. Well, we have 26 minutes, brother. Help us. <laughs> Judah is taking too long. <laughs> it's true. Check out what it says about the temple in verse 13. The glory of Lebanon will, will come to you, the pine, the fir, and the cypress together, to adorn the place of my sanctuary. How about that? Wow. Foreigners and foreign materials from outside of Israel streaming in and blessing and adorning even the sanctuary of the Lord. I will glorify the place of my feet. Yeah, it's going to be extremely evident to all that the feet of the God of Israel are standing in Jerusalem. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. (laughs) All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Man, if, if you talk to a Muslim today, Zion is a dirty word. Yeah. It's, it's like the number one curse word in their book. It's the word that most of Islam hates the most. Yeah. Now, they're going to be coming and bowing down at the feet of the Jews. And out of their own mouths, they're going to be saying, the city of the Lord, Zion, 
of the Holy One of Israel. Come on. Sounds like a Zionist conspiracy to me, Nick. <laughs> One that's rooted firmly in the Bible. Amen. Now we've got three more verses in this passage, and the imagery is going to get very intense. <laughs> Verse 16 is always Nick's favorite. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations. Yep. And be nursed at royal breasts. <laughs> even the things that you thought that you could keep for yourself, they're going to belong to Israel. Sorry about that. <laughs> then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold. And silver in place of iron. Yeah, even the materials that you thought were good, you're going to get an upgrade, Israel. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. Does that change your perspective about the millennial reign? Yes. All right, let's keep going. You want to keep going? Yes. All right, this is Isaiah 61, verses 4 through 6. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. More building projects. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Mm. Okay, so they're livestock. I assume grass-fed. <laughs> foreigners, foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. Man, what grows on a vine? Well, we'll be gardeners. <laughs> Wine. But you... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> trying to stay out of trouble over here. But Fine, you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations. Oh, we get to eat. And in their riches, you will boast. So from here, realize there are foreigners who will come and serve Israel. And Israel will be blessed as God's ministers. All right, so you've gotten to hear about the glorious, wonderful things that will happen to Israel. Zechariah 14, specifically verse 16 through 18, is going to illustrate what happens to the Gentile nations when they don't get with the program. That's good. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, yeah. the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Sukkot. And it will be that whichever of the families, think back to the days of Noah, when every nation is the offspring of a family, families of the earth, does not go up to worship Jerusalem, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. There will be no rain on them. <laughs> and that's not a blessing. It feels like a blessing during this season, but that's not a blessing. No. No, we have been to Egypt, and you need rain. Yes. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. Yeah. Okay, so quite clearly here, there will be pilgrimage to Israel from every nation during these years. Now, these pilgrimages, these feasts require certain sacrifices. They require the death of an animal and all kinds of stuff that doesn't fit in most Christians' theology. But those who do not honor the feast will be punished and be punished severely to the point where life is not sustainable until they obey the God of Israel and honor his people. 
Are, uh, are your eyes being opened a little? Yeah. yeah. We have a perpetual priesthood that is Levitical. We definitely have a perpetual priesthood that extends from heaven that is in the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus is uh, the high priest of that priesthood. These priesthoods work together in concert at, and at the same time. The Feast of Israel also continue, even for nations that are not Israel. Gentile nations. Wow. And sacrifices and offerings continue. We can argue about their purposes all you want, but no amount of study will cause you to arrive at the idea that they're all bloodless. It's simply not true, which ought to cause you to reread Hebrews. Can I give you one that I think you'll, you'll appreciate? Yeah. Rick, I think you'll appreciate this one. We have any rednecks like Rick in this room? <laughs> Linton is definitely a redneck like Rick in this room. Yeah, back with shirt on right now. I mean, <laughs> if all this sounds entirely too spiritual for you, then there's at least one part of this that you, you will appreciate. This is Ezekiel 47, and I'm going to begin in verse 8. The waters go out towards the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go towards the sea being made to flow in the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. If you don't know what we're talking about, the Dead Sea is getting fresh water. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. That's good news. You ready for it? And there will be many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live there where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Ingalim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds. Like the fish of the great sea, very many. In the millennial reign, you still get to fish. And you will not have to charter a fishing boat. You'll be able to tell a formerly hostile nation... Take me. And he'll have to. It's good news. I mean, it's really good news. The idea of this chain was to get you to begin to visualize life on earth under the perfect rule of God. Instead of life somewhere else that is fictional and is not biblical. The reason we can't envision Levites and the reason that we want to spiritualize and allegorize Israel is because you've been raised in an off-world concept. And the Bible is about the kingdom of God coming on the earth, starting in one place. And because we have equal value, because Gentiles are valued as members of the body of Christ, does not mean that Israel is homogenous with all other nations. That's not even true in the millennial reign. Israel is special. The world was created with Israel in mind. Look, the Newer Testament also portrays life in the age to come in these kind of ways. We're not going to read them because they're 16 minutes. Instead, I'm going to tell you where to find them. In Luke 19, the faithful, faithful. They're in charge of very real cities. Some men are given five cities. Some are given ten. Friends, that's on the earth. That's where that's happening. In 1 Corinthians 6, the saints are acting 
as judges of the world and of angels. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're engaged in a process that eliminates all the enemies of God. But it is, in fact, a process and not an instantaneous event. In Revelation 2, that's an Old Testament book, right? We, the victorious saints, are given authority over nations, which apparently still exist, but they're not in Christ, and yet they're still here. In finishing the thought about the age to come, it's different than it's commonly thought of, isn't it? Yeah. I want to assure you of some things and suggest some things. David's son will be on the throne, and he happens to also be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the earthly kingship and the heavenly priesthood merge. Apparently, the Levites will still be ministering to nations that belong to God, but are not included in the body of Messiah. Perhaps because before his return, they did not receive him. Maybe we Grafton's are very much like Ittai or Ruth. We're serving as ministers under the kingship and priesthood of heaven in various tasks, including governing the world. But it is a real kingdom in a real place emanating from Israel and covering the globe. You have to adjust your thoughts. Yes. Are you all ready for verse 19? Yes. All right. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you break my covenant All right, pause right there. I'm just going to read it real slow. But I love this, and it's easily missed. He says, if you can break my covenant with the day and night. Not if it can be broken. If you, Jeremiah, can do it. Yeah. It's never a good thought to think that you can break the covenants of God. But keep going. Then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken. David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. All right, so we see it again in verse 22. We see David, his servant, and we see the Levites who minister before him. Now, nobody in this room would argue that Jesus is literally a descendant of David. Nobody would argue that. But in the same way, we also try to spiritualize the Levites in such a way that they don't exist. Well, I have a warning. We can't spiritualize the Levites in this passage without harming the Peshat of Jesus and David. You see how they're both mentioned together? If you try to spiritualize the Levites, then you got to do the same thing for the descendant of David. And we won't even dare to do that, so we can't do it for the Levites either. Now, if we had time, though... We would review God's plan in choosing Israel before the creation of the world. Y'all remember that from Ephesians 1? But we don't have the time to do that tonight. It is important for you to remember the concept that the creation of the world was in reference to God's plan for Israel, including the order of the creation itself. I want to show you a slide by Ginsburg. It comes from the Legends of the Jews, and I want to read this quickly. You've you've heard this before. For the sake of Israel, I will create the world. 
As I shall make a division between light and darkness, so I will in time to come do for Israel in Egypt. Thick darkness shall be over the land, and the children of Israel shall have light in their dwellings. As I shall make a separation between the waters under the firmament and the waters above the firmament, so I will do for Israel. I will divide the waters for him when he crosses the Red Sea. As on the third day, I shall create plants. So I will do for Israel. I will bring forth manna for him in the wilderness. As I shall create luminaries to divide day from night. So I will do for Israel. I will go before him by a day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. As I shall create the fowl of the air and the fishes of the sea. So I will do for Israel. I will bring quails for him from the sea. And as I shall breathe the breath of life into the nostrils of man, so I will do for Israel. I will give the Torah unto him, the tree of life. Do you see the same order of creation in Israel's story? This is why God keeps appealing to the covenant with the day and night as a certainty that he will achieve for Israel what he promised. When God's bringing this covenant up, He's saying, I did this whole thing for Israel. I created it all for Israel. So if I can break this, then I could break the covenant with Israel. But I won't. I can't do this because it was all created for Israel in the first place. It's very small correction, but it's worthwhile. In this passage, God is not saying, if I could break the covenant. He's you. saying, hey, Jeremiah, little guy, about I mean, you're in prison right now. But if you get a furlough... And you find a way to break my covenant with the day and night and the ordered creation, then, then you could be worried that I will not accomplish the seven things that I've promised to Israel. But since you can't do that, you wouldn't want to do that. It's not within your ability. Neither is it within my ability to not fulfill what I have spoken to wow. Israel. Yeah. This is the writer of, of Ephesians. This is why Paul can say clearly that he chose us, Israel, in him before the creation of the world. God's plan for, for all of humanity is Israel dependent. Yeah. And you have come to share in that. For the sake of Israel, I will create the world. So when he points to the night and the day, and he says, these guys aren't going anywhere. It's because they were created for, first and foremost, for Israel. The night and the day themselves were created as just one of the many aspects that you can see, that we can participate in, and it's for them. It was for them from the beginning, and if night and day are still happening, then God's covenant with Israel is absolutely still happening and will happen. Yeah. And that covenant with Israel is called the new covenant. Yeah. Just, just so, yeah. I mean, just want to make sure. Yeah. So when you're looking at that division between Malachi and Matthew and you're so excited, the word New Testament is new covenant. And it was given to Israel. Yeah. Okay. You can do this with them. You can never do it without them. Amen. Yeah. Verses 23 and 24. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. So after all that, 
after, you know, night and day, after creation, after all of these things that the Lord is assuring Jeremiah of. Because remember, this is a conversation between Jeremiah and the Lord. After he said all of these things, again, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He shows up again just to make sure that what he said previously is crystal clear. And what does he say? Haven't you noticed the people around? Haven't you noticed the people around you saying, oh, look at all these things that are befalling Israel. The Lord's rejected them. He's rejected the two kingdoms that he chose. Happened with the northern kingdom. Going to happen with the southern kingdom. Israel is done for. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Verses 25 through 26 are going to be very, very clear. It's a fantastic end to this book of consolation. But before we move on to those final two verses, you need to catch something in these verses here. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a what? Nation. Singular nation. No longer regard them as a nation. This verse alone is a death nail for seeing Israel as an allegory of any kind. And not just an allegory of any kind. Catch this. You can say that there are two kingdoms prior to the Babylonian captivity, but to not regard them as a singular nation because that's what God says he's going to do is an offense to God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? The reason that we're pausing with six minutes left to go and, and we have some good things left, is understand that almost every Protestant denomination and every single Catholic in the world does not understand Israel as a specific nation that God still has a specific plan for. Instead, whether through outright replacement or just the over-spiritualization of the word Israel, They tried to make all of us fulfill these promises. Think of this context. It is a Jew speaking with God. And he says plainly, you hear what people are saying. They no longer regard the two kingdoms as a singular nation. But it's going to happen as surely as the sun comes up every day. Okay? And I want to tell you, it has not yet happened in history. Yeah. It didn't happen in AD 70. It hasn't happened in 1948. We do not have every tribe of Israel with the law of God inscribed on their hearts in Jerusalem as the center and throne of God's praise. Yeah. You can spiritualize it if you want to, but you're wrong. And you would be ignoring 39 books of promises about it and worse misunderstanding the 27 books that you think you understand. Yeah. They are interdependent of each other. Yeah. Do you know that today most people are still saying the same thing? Yeah. Well, yeah. Do you know that today most nations are still despising the people of Israel and most nations on the planet no longer choose to regard them as a nation? Yeah. Do you know that's true? Yeah. This is still what the nations around Israel are saying Even in our day, if it weren't for a handful of nations that stand with them and say, yeah, they can exist, this would not be happening right now. Most nations are standing against Israel. 
And it was true then, and it's true today, what Peyton is about to read for us in verse 25 and 6. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night, and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Church, with the reading of this phrase, I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Come on. With that phrase, we close the book of consolation. Come on. We have learned some incredible things over the last few weeks. Remember that Jeremiah is in a dire situation. But even in that impossible situation, God shares with him what he will do for his son, for his people. Now, before we hand it over to the pastors, I want to review one slide with you. Bethany, can we have the seven prophetic announcements? These are things that will absolutely happen to Israel. And if God will do it for Israel, then we can be sure that he will do it for us. But we will never be saved without Israel's restoration. He will bring health and restore them. He will bring healing both spiritually and physically to the nation. Judah and Israel will be reunified. They will be purified. They will be forgiven. He will make them a name of joy, praise, and glory. And every nation on earth will see it. They will hear, fear, and tremble. These things have not happened. But as sure as the sun comes up every day, goes down, the moon rises, God will restore Israel. And we can take great hope in pressing on into that future vision that will come to pass. Would you guys give the Lord a round of applause for that? Goodness gracious. So we spent eight two-hour sessions on just the book of Consolation. We've spent about 26, maybe, guys, something like that, for the book of Jeremiah to get us to this point where we are. Tonight is just not, (laughs) the goal of tonight is not just for a theological discussion. The goal of tonight is for you to grip hold of what the reality of the kingdom is all about. It's not to arm you with deep thoughts by Jack Handy and anyone else that you can find deep thoughts from. (laughs) This should permeate everything about your life. This puts into context the kind of things that God is doing to refine the priesthood of the men and women here in this room. The goal isn't some off-world, otherworldly experience. The goal is that you are learning now. Almost like people who have come to King David in the cave of Adullam. Acknowledging his kingship before it appears to everyone else that he is actually king. Proclaimed. Destined. Called, and not everything is visible to the eye, but men, and in this case, men and women who are coming to the king and saying, Teach us, let us be your priests now. 
Refine us now. Because we're going to be doing this not just for the rest of our lives, but for the rest of time. The implications of what you heard tonight are absolutely mind-blowing. I'm going to take it that some of the silence tonight was that your minds were just being blown repeatedly as each new passage dropped down in your soul. That's the version I'm going to go with tonight. This is a special time for us as a church. The revelation is not meant to, not meant to feed your brain. Oh, it'll do that. That's the easy part. What it's meant to do is change your perspective about the reality of the kingdom. The kingdom is Israel dependent, not only Israel centric. And as we engage with this, as we embrace this, as you begin to take this in your everyday life and begin to filter your thoughts through the reality of what you've heard tonight, the last eight sessions, the last 26 sessions, then it starts to make you and refine you as a priesthood like God intends to be able to use. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Couldn't help but connect what we concluded on, on Sunday with what we were hearing tonight. On Sunday, we concluded with Numbers 8 and the preparation of the Levitical priesthood, ending with being a wave offering before the Lord. But the aim and goal was that they were prepared to do the work of service. And here, the connection is that we do a work of service that is perpetual. It is ongoing. It's eternal. That it is regarding what you do today but it's also regarding what you will do for an eternity. Man, we have received a buffet of revelation going through these chapters. Here's what we are to do. We're to be those goyim, those foreigners that bind themselves to the Lord. We're to be those goyim that serve wholeheartedly and minister in His presence, have offerings and sacrifices that are accepted by His altar. As we pray, let your own lives be a living sacrifice that is bound to Him, that serves His interest only and has an eternal trajectory. Are you ready? Mighty God, we thank You. We thank You for the blood of Your covenant that has included us with Israel, that is preparing us to become priests with Israel, and that for eternity we get to serve with Israel. Lord, we bind ourselves to You. Serve wholeheartedly Your kingdom, Your people, and Your interests. Lord, receive the sacrifices and offerings that we bring to Your altar and let it be a sweet incense that rises to Your throne. We love You, mighty God, and we thank You for Your Word. Everybody says, Amen. Amen. Amen.